So what are the most common things that people forget? Ah. Oh, look at that. I see a lot of wives hitting, elbowing their husbands. <laughs> well, I came across a list. I, I, yep, a list. Uh, there's a list of everything right online. It's just there. Whether it's all true or not, who knows? But anyway, the most common things people forget, and I, I found this list of the nine top things. Some of them may surprise you. If I was to, I asked uh, Jane, and I said, hey, hon, what do you think? I told her what I was doing, and, and so she had a, a few things, and, and, and I asked in the office a couple things. But anyway, here's, here's, here's the list that, that I found. Number one, uh, the most common things people forget, 51% of people said password. Yeah, we all know what that's like, right? And, and you're somewhere on your phone and whatever, and you know you have it written down at home, and you can't, so you change it. And how many times you had to do All right, next. Uh, when I go grocery shopping, you say, how can you forget? Don't you make a list? Well, that's probably the problem, right? Uh, and so no list. Next one, uh, 49%. Ah, keys. You do know why. A lot of the newer cars now have the, you know, you don't need a key anymore. You just have the fob in your pocket and you push the button. It's so you don't lose your keys, right? Yeah, well, anyway, okay. You still do, though. Uh, wh what I went into a room for. <laughs> Anybody been there? I'll be sitting at my desk. And, and I'll think of something, and, and i got to talk to Sylvia so I walk out of my office, down the hallway, and, Sylvia, um, I forget what I was going to say. It's like, all right, okay. Uh, another one, 47%, people's names after being introduced. Oh, yeah, you got to work at that one, yeah. All right, here's, here's next. A, a word on the tip of my tongue. I don't know if I would ever say that or admit that, but, right, it's, I was going to say... Uh, okay, uh, what day it is? What? Oh, are you kidding? You know? Okay, well, uh, misplaced cell phone. Yeah, they'd have beepers on those things, shouldn't they? Absolutely. You know, um, they say that with the remotes too. TV remotes. How many of you lost those? I forget where I. Yeah, if they had like GPS devices on them, that would be a good thing. And then the last. Forget where my car is parked. That's why you have the car fobs too, right? It's because you can walk out. Somebody was telling me, and that name will remain anonymous, that they were in one of those uh, malls that has multi-level parking, and they were a floor below parking and were, was doing this and heard the car, the floor above. Whoa. Anyway, have you ever done that? You walk out in the parking lot. Oh, man, where did that go? Anyway, yeah, so forgetfulness, there you go. People say, what about birthdays, anniversaries, doctor's appointments? That's probably typically on the top of your list of, it didn't make this list, but we forget those things. And, and of course, there's the, Jane calls me, hon, would you stop at the grocery store on the way home and pick up? Sure. You know when I remember? When I hit the bar button for the garage door to go up, and, and then I'm like, oh, no. So I got to go back out. Yeah, forgetfulness. So how does that happen? Well, the number one answer was age. 
Age, right? That's why we all blame it. I'm getting old. Yeah, how many of you uh, 17-year-olds are going, yeah, I'm getting old, I'm forgetting. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. But uh, some say, well, multitasking, which is a nice business corporate-like way of saying I'm too busy. i got too many things going on. Uh, but whatever it may be, we don't know. How does that happen? Well, let me ask you another question. Can you think of a time when you forgot God? A time when you forgot God. I'm not talking about forgetting to read your Bible. I'm not talking about forgetting to pray. I'm not talking about forgetting an activity uh, where the church is meeting together. I'm not talking about a Sunday morning service. I'm talking about forgetting God. A time you forgot God. And you may be going, seriously? Who could forget God? How is that possible? How in the world could that happen? How could anyone forget God? Well, our series, Out of Sight, Out of Mind. That's how it starts. Out of sight, out of mind, because we forget those things that aren't in our eyes and aren't in our minds and hearts. Out of sight, out of mind. Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, we're going to start at... Verse 7, if you need a hard copy of a Bible, you don't have one and want one underneath the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible there for you, page 166 in that Bible, Judges chapter 3 and verse 7. Here it is, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is the first of uh, six occurrences of this phrase. Six occurrences we're going to see throughout our study. We're going to see another one today in verse 12, but we'll see two of the six today as we look at the first two major judges. And um, they begin each of the six repeated cycles of the Israelites turning away from the Lord. And we talked about that a week or two ago. About That's what we call apostasy turning away from the Lord, turning away from the truth of what you believe, deciding that what God says in the Word isn't true, doesn't matter, has no hold on you, you have no responsibility, you don't care, that's it, it's gone. Apostasy. And uh, so as we look, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's where we see now, we're going to see six times this cycle. Now, actually, the further into the book of Judges we get, and as we get into these six cycles, you're not going to see every one of these five steps. Uh, We talked about this last week. We shared it starts with rebellion. The people do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then as a result, God judges ruin. And, And then I said last week, and I have a little asterisk by remorse because I used the word repentance last week. I've changed my mind on that. I don't think it was repentance. We'll get to that. Um, Then we move to restoration. God raises up a judge, a leader to uh, defeat the enemy that God was using to punish the sin of the Israelites and, and then restore order and worship and praise of God and serving God rather than the idols and then rest. And then it repeats all over again. 
And so as we talk about this, uh, here we are. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this also begins the six cycles that we see where we have a lot said about one of the judges, one of the men or women who God raised up to deliver the nation of Israel from the enemy. So again, there in verse 7 of chapter 3, we see the first step in the cycle, rebellion. Verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. They forgot the Lord their God. So if you say that can't happen or that would never happen, it did here. They forgot their God. And that's a problem. Now, we're going to come back to that again. But again, it's out of sight, out of mind. How do you forget God? Out of sight, out of mind. That's part of the answer. So we move to that. Um, Verse 8, then. Judges chapter 3, verse 8. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of of Kushan, Rishatim, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. How'd you like the way I pronounced those names, huh? <laughs> I actually listened to it on my Lagos uh, Bible study just to hear how they would pronounce it. Good enough. All right. Um, there it is. So... Uh, when we see the name of the king of Aram, Kushan Rishatim, that name means, that second half of that name means doubly wicked. This guy was nasty. I mean, his mama named him, right? He lived up to it. And, and there you go. And, and understand, for Israel here, the ruin as a result of sin that came to them as a nation and, and what we find here is that uh, sin leads to slavery, and that's exactly what God did here. God raised up an evil king, an ungodly king, to take control, to submit Israel to their authority, to lead them into slavery. Think about it, eight years. Now, you and I might say today, eight years, that's not a long time, but actually it is when you're going through it. How would you like to have COVID for eight years? (laughs) Is that a long time or ah, eight years? That's a piece of cake, right? No, see, eight years in slavery, eight years being punished for their sin by an enemy nation. That's a long time, longer than we might think. And that leads to, as Israel was suffering, we find that out, they were subject for eight years to this wicked king and his armies. That leads to the third stage, verse 9, remorse. But when they cried out to the Lord. Now, what does cried out mean? We would think we know it. We, we cry out to the Lord. I hope we know how to do that. When the needs are great, sometimes we just pray. And that's great. That's needed. That's necessary. But when we really get to a point where we're in trouble, it's like we cry out. I tell some people at times, uh, tell myself, cry out to God. Don't just routinely 
Oh, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Thank you. Right? Sometimes you ever find yourself praying that way? Listen to yourself the next time you pray for your meal. What do you pray? Is it just routine? I mean, think about it. How, do we cry out to God? Well, was this repentance or was it just simply the nation of Israel saying, well, we're sorry, God, we got caught, right? Or was it uh, sorry, we're, we're really sorry about the stress that you've brought into our lives. We're sorry about, we feel bad about the pain and the suffering that we've had to endure, so we're going to cry out to you, Lord, to take it away. Or is it simply a cry of desperation, of remorse, of regret? Um, I thought, you know what? What is repentance? If we're going to talk about whether or not it's repentance, we better know what the Bible says is repentance. So I looked up in uh, an online dictionary, and they said this, repentance is expressing or feeling sincere regret and remorse. Now, that's how some of us think, right? Expressing or feeling sincere regret or remorse. Can I tell you that there's a whole lot more to repentance than just feeling sorry? Feeling regret. You say, well, what does remorse, what does the dictionary? So I looked that up. And what that said is deep regret or guilt for wrong committed. Can I tell you, too, that repentance is more than guilt as well? Oh, that's part of it. We need to feel the spirit, Holy Spirit guilt. Much, I'm not talking about the kind of a guilt that we feel bad for something we do, and it's a self-imposed guilt, and people will say, you can't hold on to that. You've got to let go. You know how that goes. That's not what we're talking here. And when we talk about repentance, we need to understand. So what does the Bible say? Well, it's the act of changing the mind, thinking differently. Uh, the biblical repentance goes beyond remorse. It goes beyond regret. It goes beyond just feeling bad about our sin. I came across this. Uh, you ever want a good resource? And I've used it quite often, Not so I can't vouch for everything. But what I've seen, it's a good thing. GotQuestions.org. Online, it's a pretty good thing. I looked up in a lot of my theology books and things, and I like this definition of repentance as good as anything that I found. A complete and irreversible change of mind, heart, and actions. All of that's involved. Repentance recognizes that our sin is offensive to God. Not just, ah, oh, so, sorry, God. You ever tell your kids, like your siblings or you siblings, right? Your parents tell you, put yourself in that spot because I'm sure we've all been there and you're not getting along with your brother or sister or cousin or friend and, and, and parents will say, now you, you two tell each other you're sorry. Anybody ever? No, I want to ask you for, yeah, what, and what happened? I'm sorry. Well, is that really repentance? No, no, because it's a whole lot more. It's understanding that my sin is offensive to God. It's making an about face, a heart-directed turn away from self to God. That's repentance. That's not where Israel was. 
In fact, the word that's used there is they cried out. There's no indication of, of what we would definitely call repentance. It does involve confession, saying the same thing about our sin that God does. Not just, again, not just, sometimes we think, well, confession, 1 John 1, 9, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And sometimes, well, okay, God, I'm sorry. For what? Do you ever do that with, Jane and I have tried to do that with one another. If we say, I'm sorry, well, what are you sorry for? And, and it's like, okay, I, I'm sorry because I got angry at you. I'm sorry because I lost my temper at you. I'm sorry because I lied to you, and will you forgive me? You see, what we need to recognize, it's an, sin is an offense to God. It's just not some, uh, I'm sorry. You know, we use that word so often, right? You bump into somebody in the hallway. Oh, sorry. That's, that's a whole lot different than what we're talking about here. Israel may have just been, yeah, just sorry, because this cycle continued on. And so as we look at this whole business of repentance, a complete and irreversible change of mind, and, and, and as we think about that, a heart and actions, that is so critical. We've got to grab hold of that. Israel did not repent. It doesn't fit the biblical definition. So that leads then to restoration. Verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up. When they cried out to the Lord, who? God, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them, who delivered them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, came on Othniel. The power of God came on him through the Holy Spirit, we're told there. And as we read that, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. Now, that's not just any light matter. I mean, they were subject to the enemy for eight years. And now God gives Othniel the power of God, and he overpowers and defeats the enemy nation that God had put there to judge and punish the sin of Israel. This is all of God. The judges in their work and what they do in dealing with Israel and helping them overcome their sin, it is all of God. Yes, God uses people. God uses us. It's like any of you that are involved in serving God here at Heritage, whether it's on Sunday morning, whether you're up here uh, as part of the worship team or, or back at our uh, sound booth and with the PowerPoint and all of the stuff, the video and sound and all the rest, or whether you're down, in the, hall, down the hallway in the nursery and you're serving God or whether you're teaching our kids the twos and threes or the fours and fives or our first through fourth graders or HSM, when anything happens, when they learn something, when those kids come to know Jesus or when they grab hold of a biblical truth and it makes sense and we go, yeah, they get it. That's the work of God. God's the one who changes our, oh yes, he uses us and that's why we need people. But God does the work. 
It's all God. He raised up. He empowered a deliverer, Othniel. The Lord gave the enemy to him. The Lord responded to Israel with grace and compassion and defeated that enemy that was there to judge their sin. That's restoration. And then we get to verse 11. So Israel, so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now that's one of the things we talked about in back in chapter 2 when we kind of looked at the cycle that happens. One of those steps was that there is peace as long as that judge lives. But when Othniel died, things resorted to the way they were. And we'll get there in a minute. But as we talk about this, the land had peace for 40 years. Wouldn't you think that after eight years of pain and suffering at the hands of an ungodly enemy nation, that when God used Othniel, raised him up, empowered him to deliver Israel from their sin, to cause them to turn back, at least to some degree, God gave them victory, and then they experienced 40 years of peace. Wouldn't you think that would be motivation enough to never want to go back to the, to the pain and suffering under God's judgment by an enemy king? Wouldn't you think? Well, I would. Some of you I see shaking your heads, and I think you would too, and, and that would be the, the, the conclusion that we would want to come to. But that's not what happened. Wouldn't you think they would be more committed than ever before to set their minds and their hearts on things above, not on things on this earth? Well, when the judge died, and we're told that each time that happens, Israel went back into sin, and they were more corrupt than, they, than their fathers had been. Check out Judges chapter 2 and verse 19. Back in there, we read there last week. You'll see that's what we're told. It's a downward spiral. It sounds real good. Othniel, God used him 40 years of peace, but the next time it got worse, and we're going to see that in just a minute. It's a downward spiral, and sin can do that, folks. If we don't repent. Let's keep going. Because what we said last week. Was after this cycle. It repeats itself. So there you have it. You know wouldn't it be interesting. If there was a judge. Who wouldn't die. Who would live forever. Who would like. Provide us with eternal life so we could live forever? Wouldn't it be great if there was somebody like that? Well, keep in mind, the judges are always pointing ahead to Jesus. And that's what's happening here. But let's, let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 12, because here we go. Again, first word, Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm just going to stop saying, are you kidding me? Because this is going to go on and on and on and on. And that's what we're told in Scripture. And again, the Israelites did. So again, rebellion, ruin, remorse, restoration, rest, 
and again started all over again. So here we go. Here we go again. Verse 12. Look at it there. Verses 12 to 14. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, there it is, because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. The Lord gave another evil king power over Israel. What? Yep, that's what it says. God used another ungodly enemy nation, evil king, to judge Israel's sin. So there it is, verse 13. We read, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. What's that? What city? Jericho. Jericho, yeah, good. Jericho, that's the city of Palms. That's what he's talking about. So now you know kind of the geographical area they are right down there by the, by the Jordan and, um, and, and, the, and the city of Jericho. And we read verse 14, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. This time, 10 more than the last time. 10 more years of pain and suffering at the hands of an enemy nation. Why? Because of their sin. That's the ruin. Now that word, the name Eglon, King Eglon, this is some interesting word studies here that we're not going to dig into a lot, but this one means fat. Fatted calf or bull. And, and when it says there that they were subject to Eglon, that word subject can also have the idea of worshiping. They worshiped a fatted calf. Ring any bells? Exodus 32. Remember Aaron made a golden calf and they worshiped it and got in trouble? Here, this is interesting. And that's the name Eglon. Just... Keep that in mind, 18 years, and that brings us to verse 15, remorse. Again, here we go, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Again, remorse, regret, desperation after 18 years, and we read this, and the Lord, uh, and he gave them, the Lord gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, here we have it. We find there's remorse. And, and again, remember we, we talked about the definition of repentance. I don't know, Katie, do I have that in there again? Or just let me read it for you. Um, a complete and irreversible, there it is, complete and irreversible change of mind, heart, and actions Repentance recognizes that our sin is offensive to God. Make an about-face, heart-directed turn away from self to God. That's repentance. I want you to get that because that's critical for us today. And we'll come to that at the end. But there it is, repentance. It's, that's what it is. But here again is just remorse. And so now we get to restoration. Now, there's a big deal that some would make about this whole judge. And all of what he does, moving on down here through verse 29. And, and 
Someone said, I was reading this week, that if, that if somebody ever made a TV show or a movie out of this, we probably wouldn't let our kids watch it. I mean, it's, it's and you'll see what I mean, all right? So as we look at it here, here's, here's what we have. This is the period of restoration. And, and so we look at it there. Ehud, a left-handed man. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty about that terminology. Some would say that meant that his right hand uh, was in some way handicapped. It was physically, that didn't work right. And so that's why he's a left-handed man. Others would say, no, there's no way that that would be. In fact, later on, we're told that there were 700 Benjamites. Ehud is a Benjamite who with their left hands could use a slingshot and hit a hair. So what I believe in my study is that he was a well-trained, specially trained warrior. That's what it's talking about here. And he used his left hand. And probably because many weren't, most were right-handed at least, that's what we're told. And and so what we, we realize is when he went to see the king, so here we go. Hold on to your seat, folks. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Tribute, what's that? Well, it could have been money, but probably in those days, it had to do with the produce of the land that they were raising. And because they were being held in subjection to the king of Moab, that they had to bring tribute, like they were being taxed. And they probably brought food. In fact, the fact of the matter is, I'll show you why that's probably a pretty good understanding of it. Now, Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Again, he was a left-handed man. So his right thigh, here's left hand, he had it under his clothing, how that worked, his robe, whatever, so that when the time came, he would be able to reach, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But a, a cubit long is Probably, and this, they would say anywhere from 12 to 16 to 18 inches. That It wasn't real long, remember. He had to have it under his robe, strapped to his leg, so that it wouldn't be seen. All right, so there you have it. And uh, so as we move on, uh, verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very f- fat man. Wow, that's not politically correct. It's not even nice, but... But that's what we read. And it was. He was very obese. Now, some try to explain that away, but I, I think that's exactly what it means here. Uh, he was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he came on their way. Uh, or he sent on their way those who had carried it. Now, in here, I, 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 I miss saying this, but I found like a three-fold outline in the middle of this judge's cycle. Presentation. He brought the tribute assassination. Here we go, all right? Assassination. So after Ehud presented the tribute, he sent those that came with him on the way, but verse 19, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. So he was with his entourage, um, Ehud was, and uh, they got out to probably some idols that were being worshipped, and he decided, you guys keep going, I'm going back to see the king, And this is part of the assassination plot. We're told that, um, and he came back to the king and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. So all of his guard, the palace guard, whoever was there, 
He said, leave us, they all left. Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat. Now, some would say that maybe he understood because this is the word Elohim, God. It's not the word Jehovah, Lord, all capital, capital L-O-R-D. That's Jehovah. That's not what's being used here. I have a message from God. He may have thought that he had a message from their gods, the idols. But he may have also thought, oh, here's an Israelite. He's bringing me a message from his God. Either way, he says, I have a message from God. And the king, wow, okay, he stands up to hear it. And we're told there in verse 20, um, Ehud then approached him. I have a message from God. As the king rose from his seat, verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Whoa, that's rated, I don't know what they rated, uh, violent, right? R for violence, there you go. There it is. It plunged, even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Folks, this is a little gross here. You know, I mean, just imagine. Let your senses move a little bit. Do you smell anything? Huh. Yeah, well, there you go. And uh, he says, um, even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Wow. And the thought is that in order to do the damage that it did, when he plunged in and went all the way through and probably stuck out its back and and his bowels emptied. Not a pleasant sight or smell. Then we're told, Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the room, upper room behind him and locked them. If you read the New Living Translation or others who may have studied this and come, one of the conclusions is that Ehud escaped down through the latrine. That would have been an interesting thing. Whether or not that's the case, others would say, no, he closed the doors behind him and there were other open areas and the, and the guards were even out further than that. And when he came in, he locked the doors behind him and then left, walked by the palace guard and he was out and he was gone. Verse 21, that's, that's the sap- assassination. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked they said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And, and some would say, yeah, maybe they smelled that. Or because he was a big man, they knew that that was his hat. Anyway, they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen on the floor dead. All of this was time for Ehud to get away. And that's what happened. Liberation. Verse 26, while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him, leading them. Verse 28, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. One of the things that is said about this whole story, this whole 
judge's account is that God is absent. Like, why would, if God was involved, why would he tell this story? Why would he let Ehud do what he did? Well, if you read back at the beginning, God is absolutely in the story. His name isn't mentioned down through the assassination plot, but his name is there at the beginning that tells us God raised him up. And here we're told that God gave. There it is, right? God gave. Verse 28, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given. There's Jehovah. The Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No one, not one escaped. And here we go. We jump right down to rest. Verse 20 or 30. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel. Tables are turned, folks. Moab, subject to Israel. And notice... The land had peace for 80 years. First two judges, different stories. One pretty action-packed. One great victory, but not a whole lot of action going on. At least I'm sure there was in the battle, but we don't see it. We're not told about it. So, so there we have it. Now we get to verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. An ox goad was probably a six to eight to ten foot spear-like rod pole. And, and on one end it had a sharp point that you would use to poke the oxen goad to make them move if they stopped on the other end was a cleaning tool that if they were plowing the oxen were plowing the dirt they would clean off the plows scrape off the mud whatever wasn't he used that tool 600 there's a lot of interesting weapons in the in the book of judges <laughs> and you'll hear more about them as we go along right but here the shamgar that's all we know about him so it's not one of the six cycles, except that we know probably this stuff went on here. So what do we do now? What should we learn from all this? Say, man, I, uh, don't gain weight. Uh, I, you know, look out for 18-inch uh, uh, daggers. I, I, well, here you go. If you don't want to forget God, you must remember some things. If you don't want to forget God, you've got to remember some things. Number one, sin will cause you to forget God. You want to know how you forget God? Allow sin into your life and do nothing about it. Sin will cause you to forget God. Sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. Cause you to forget God. Number two. Cry out to God in repentance, not desperation. If you want to remember God, you don't ever want to be in a place where you've forgotten God. Cry out to God in repentance, not desperation. And folks, when we get ourselves in trouble, and, and I want to be really careful here, because sometimes it's real easy to say when anything bad happens, those people, I wonder what sin they were involved in. You ever do that? Be careful about that. Remember in John, the disciples, it was a, a blind man. The disciples said to Jesus, hey, who sinned, this man's father or mother? 
And what did Jesus say? He said, neither, but that God would get glory. That's why he's blind. So be very careful. Like somebody, somebody is a sick a lot. Man, I wonder what's going on in their life. Must have some hidden sin there. They keep having all kinds of problems. Well, we got to be very careful about that. God can do that. God did that here with Israel. But we need to be careful, and we need to think in our own hearts and minds, hey, cry out to God in repentance, not desperation. Don't wait till you get to the point that your life is a mess, and you're in trouble, and you're suffering, and pain, and stress, and all the rest of it. Don't wait till then to cry out to God and say, God, I'm sorry. No, repent. Complete change of mind, heart, and actions. Number two, Number three. God will never leave or abandon you. You say, wait a minute, he, he did. He put Israel, when Othniel had rescued them, they were alone for eight years. No, they weren't alone. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in the next one, they were alone for 18. No, they weren't alone. Eight years, 18 years. No, no, no. God knew everything that was going on. God was right there. God allowed that. In fact, we're told that God even raised up the king Eglon of Moab to judge Israel. God was there. God will never leave or abandon you. He told Joshua that when Joshua took over from Moses. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord will never leave or abandon us. That's what we need to understand, and we may feel that way. That's why we need to repent and understand that. God raised up the enemy. He is faithful to deal with sin. It may feel like he's walked away. No, he's dealing with our sin. He is faithful, promised to never leave or abandon. And then lastly, look to Jesus, your deliverer, and fix your eyes on him. We've been saying that. Fix your eyes on him. And I want to close with this verse. We used this, I think, two weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross for us. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at verse 3. Consider him, who? Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Again, his endurance. Why? so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Keep your eyes and your mind on Jesus so that you will not grow weary or lose heart because he endured the cross for us. You want to avoid forgetting God? You fix your eyes and your heart on Jesus. Let him fill your mind with his truth. That's the key. Because as we've seen here, we can forget God. Sin will cause us to forget about God. Father, what an amazing couple of stories here. So many lessons for us to learn. God, help us to realize that Satan is out like a roaring lion looking to devour, to destroy, to ruin our lives. 
And as we've seen illustrated in the nation of Israel, sin brings us to ruin. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross, to give, shed his blood, to pay the penalty for our sin. And thank you for raising him from the dead, proving that he was the Son of God, that he was our Savior, that he could and would do what he promised to do if we believe. He is our deliverer, our judge. Father, if there be any here today who do not know Jesus, open their hearts. Cause them to see, to believe that their sin will send them to hell, but you sent Jesus to deliver us if we believe that he came to forgive our sin. God, help us who know Jesus to deal with sin, to turn to you always, to let you use us to bring about great victories in the lives of people all around us, in our own life. God, if there are any here today who are just struggling, who are just down, defeated, stressed, pained, suffering, God, raise them up. For the glory of God, for it's in his name that I pray. Amen.